Well, good afternoon, everyone, and um, happy Thanksgiving next week. If you're here or you're, you're traveling, you're one of the 10 million people who are flying next week. Good luck with that. Now, uh, if you turn to the back of your bulletin, I have this uh, quotation. I had six um, Wednesday at first to do before I sail off into the sunset. (laughs) And um, I recalled that Jim Packer famously had written uh, back in the 1950s uh, when he first wrote Knowing God, uh, calling this the Christian secret of a Christian life and of a God-honoring life, he says that we should take the following truths and say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it all utterly and completely true, that it is all utterly and completely true. And the first was, I am a child of God. The second is the corollary of that, God is my Father. Now, let me quote Jim Packer again from Knowing God. You sum up the whole New Testament If you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father, the knowledge of God as one's holy father, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So my text today, and we're not going to look at this text in detail, we're just going to pick out a few truths in it, Galatians 4 Uh, 1 to 7 is printed on the inside of your bulletin. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's talking about living under the Old Testament. And it was like slavery. It was like bondage. Now, he's making a relative contrast, but he's making it in absolute terms. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's very, we're we're thinking about God as our heavenly father. Um, It's very poignant, I think, that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them saying, our father who art in heaven. Now, there are a few references, half a dozen or so, in the Old Testament to God as a father. But the name that is prevalent in the Old Testament is the name Yahweh, or what we used to say, Jehovah. This was the name God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. And it sounds in Hebrew like the verb to be, I am that I am, and later shortened in Exodus chapter 6 to I am. He is the God who is, as opposed to the idols that don't actually have any existence. The problem with idols is that they don't exist. They only exist in the mind, but they don't actually exist. But the God who made the heavens and the earth exists. Now that name, Yahweh, uh, is not employed in the New Testament. Uh, Paul never once uses the word uh, Yahweh. But instead translates that into kurios, meaning Lord. Lord with a capital L. That's the typical way um, that that Paul refers to God and refers especially to to Christ as Lord. But when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he did something that was almost entirely new. It was almost an entirely new worldview of how to think about God. He is the same God from Old Testament to New Testament, but now he's called our Father. We repeat it as a statement of faith every Sunday morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in God, the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. Now, I want to explore a little of what it means to say that God is our Father. And first of all, God is Father in, and I'm, 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 I need you to, to go down deep. I need you to dig in, take a deep breath. We're going deep for a second or two. Because I want to talk about the Trinity. God is father in the relationships he has within the triune God. There is only one God. Jews repeated the Shema of Israel from Deuteronomy 6 three times a day. 
Behold, the Lord your God, he is one. And that, that was the principal distinction between Judaism and all of the other isms. All of the other religions around Judaism. All of those religions were polytheistic, but Judaism and Christianity is monotheistic. There is one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so when the church tried to think about how to put together these two almost competing ideas that God is one and yet there is a sense in which there is three Father, Son and Holy Spirit and they are distinct and they talk to each other they commune with each other and so an early church father uh, coined the term uh, in Latin, um, Trinitas, Trinity, meaning three in oneness. Now, you understand everything that I've just said, but it blows the mind, doesn't it? That in the very essence of God, there are three. So the early church wrestled with this doctrine in the 4th century in 325 in Nicaea and it was uh, amended in Constantinople in 385 declaring the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father is a Father to the Son. Before He is a Father to us, before creation... Before the incarnation, the father was a father to the son, and the son was a son to the father. And within the Trinity, each person has a distinct role to play. The father sends, the son is sent, and the Holy Spirit proceeds. Those are the terms that the church came up with to distinguish the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in his incarnate state, the Son obeys his Father. I have come to do the will of my Father. Everything that he came into the world for was in obedience to his heavenly Father, to obey the Father's word, to obey the Father's law, to obey the Father's will. So before he is a father to us, he is a father to the Son. They relate to each other like a, like a father and son within the family that is the Trinity. The one God who exists in three persons. Secondly, God is the father of all men and women. 
There are some passages in Scripture, not many, but there are some passages in Scripture which use the term father in the sense of creator. So Paul, for example, on um, the Areopagus in Athens uh, says to his listeners, we are all his offspring. He's talking to Greeks, Hellenists, who worship the pantheon of Greek gods, and there were hundreds of them. And what he saw on the Areopagus were statues for each of these gods, and even there was even one for the unknown god, just, just in case they'd, they'd, missed, they'd missed him. So they, they, they erected a statue for the unknown god. And Paul quotes from a 6th century BC a Cretan poet, and he says, uh, he quotes the line, in him we live and move and have our being. There is a sense in which God is the father of all creation. He, he brought everyone into being, into existence. God is not a, a lifeless idol fashioned by the human hand in wood or gold or silver. He is the living God. And in him we live and move and have our being, our life, even for a non-Christian. Our life is wholly dependent upon him. He upholds us. He executes his providence. Where does life come from? Well, it doesn't come from lifeless material, but it comes from the living God. But then thirdly, and and principally, God is father by adoption. In verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God had been promising this throughout the whole of the Old Testament, beginning in uh, the garden in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the seed, the seed of the serpent, that there would be this war between good and evil. And God would send a savior, he'd send a redeemer, a prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18, someone like David in 2 Samuel 7, a suffering servant in the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah, culminating when the fullness of time had come when Christmas came. When a virgin conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in her womb, the Savior. And notice how he puts it, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. The Son to whom he was a father. And he sent him forth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent him forth born of a woman. Well, duh. How else would he be born? He's he's not 
he's not really thinking about Mary here. I think he's thinking about Genesis 3.15. That he is the seed of the woman. He is the one that's born of a woman. Born under the law. He came to fulfill what we could not fulfill. He came to keep what we have broken. He came to obey that which we constantly disobey. And in order to satisfy the demands of divine justice and the holiness and righteousness of God, sin had to be punished. And sin was punished in Christ. Our sins were reckoned to his account and his obedience, his righteousness reckoned to our account. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christmas is about the possibility of adoption. That God adopts us into his family. You remember Jesus says, uh, you are of your father the devil. That is what we are by nature. We are fallen sons of Adam by nature. And God brings us into his family. You, You may not have had the best father in the world. And sadly, there are some who have fathers that... would be difficult to say anything good or positive about. But when you become a Christian, when you become a believer, when you trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you may come before God and call him Abba, Father. Abba, Father. I was listening to somebody pray the other day, and he kept referring to God And he was talking to God, but he was calling him God. And I I wanted to stop the prayer. I didn't do it, but I wanted to stop the prayer and say, call him Father. Yes, he is your God, but in Jesus Christ, he is your Father. Your Heavenly Father. I'm not comfortable with translating it as Daddy. I've heard preachers say that. I'm not comfortable with that, and I don't think that that's linguistically correct. The term Abba was a term used not by children, but by adults. And we must always refer to God with reverence and with awe. Yes, he is my father, but he is my heavenly father. He's my holy father. He's my righteous father. The New Testament scholar Murray Harris, who's a formidable Greek scholar, says that in New Testament times, Abba was a term used not by little children, but by adults, sons and daughters, addressing their father with with respect I rather think that Abba, Father, is a bit like the southern way of of saying sir and ma'am. Many of you, I'm sure, called your fathers sir. Yes, sir. You'll hear 
little children being corrected by their parents, at least in our circles. What do you say? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. There's love, there's community, there's relationship, but there's also respect and awe. So by grace, we are his adopted children, and we are enabled to say, Abba, Father. That's the, that's the high point of Christianity. That's the climax of Christianity, that we can call God Abba, Father, something that is almost not present in the Old Testament. That what makes the New Testament new is that you can call God your Heavenly Father. So that ultimate reality is not cold, empty space, but ultimate reality is a Father reaching out to sinners and drawing them to himself and saying, I am your Father. I am your Heavenly Father. And you are part of my extended family with Jesus as our elder brother in that family. We have access to him. Tim Keller writes, the only person who can wake someone up at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. If you're a spouse and you wake your partner at 3 a.m. and say, can you go and get a glass of water? I am not sure what's going to come next. <laughs> but if it's, if it's a child, you will go and get them some water. Do you remember Jesus when Mary Magdalene threw her arms around him and, and wouldn't let him go and, she said, and he says, um, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, older interpreters try to distinguish how the word father is used by Jesus and, and how father is used of, of us, my father and your father, but modern interpreters, including people like Sinclair Ferguson, insist that Jesus meant the word father in exactly the same way. That in his incarnate state, Jesus relates to God, though he was himself God, but in his human nature, he refers to my God and your God, my father and your father. How do we speak to God? We speak to God like Jesus spoke to God. How great, 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love of the Father that he has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we really are, John says. How how great is the love of God that we should be his children and that he should be our heavenly father. Now let me, um, it's not a quarter to two, is it? 
the clock says 1.43. Um, it must be 12.43. And um, let me say three things. We are greatly, greatly, greatly loved and cared for. If you make freedom from trials the source of your assurance and you say to yourself, well, God has blessed me, you're going to get unstuck when those trials come. God still blesses you. God still loves you. God still cares for you, even through the mystery of his providence. Say to yourself, nothing can separate me from the love of God, my heavenly Father. Not life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us because... My father loves me. My father loves me. How do I know that my father loves me? Because he sent his only begotten son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. We are greatly, greatly, greatly loved and cared for. Even in the midst of trials. Secondly, He is always more ready to hear than we are to pray. I miss my grandchildren a lot. In Providence, I didn't see them grow up except on FaceTime. They are 4,000 miles away. And now that they're 17 and 15, conversations get complicated. And the questions get more complicated. And it's fascinating if, no, no, matter, no matter what I'm doing, if, if I see Daniel or Hannah and they're FaceTiming me, which they do several times a week, I stop whatever I'm doing because I want, I want to see them. I want to talk to them. I want to hear Daniel's latest joke. And it's, they're terrible. They're just really <laughs> corny jokes, but he loves telling jokes. Your father is way more ready to hear you than you are to speak to him. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father? The gift of patience, the gift of assurance the gift of that peace that passes all understanding in the midst of sorrow and trial and difficulty. Talk to him, and he will listen. His ear is always open to the cry of his children. And then thirdly, the point of Galatians 4, we are heirs. We are heirs. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir. You're an inheritor. 
you're going to get heaven when you die. Your father has prepared for you many mansions. And he's going to take you there. And eventually to a new heavens and a new earth. And, and people ask, what, what is that like, pastor? And I say, well, look around you. It's like this, except without sin. Imagine the Garden of Eden. Imagine paradise. And we should think about heaven a lot. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. These are Jesus' last words to his disciples. Heaven awaits. Glory awaits. To be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. To be in that kingdom where all his children eventually go. He's my father. And glory awaits to see him face to face in all of his beauty and grandeur. And you say to yourself, I can't wait. I can't wait. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you brought us into a family of brothers and sisters and an elder brother called Jesus who saves us and rescues us and promises to us a glory that is to come. Help us to repeat these thoughts to ourselves every day that we might live a God-honoring life. For Jesus' sake, amen.